sermon that you're about to hear is from Pastor Paul Borman at Hope Lutheran Church, located in Tigard, Oregon. For more information and for more content, go to hopeintigard.com. You don't even have to read the words of this text to know what's going on here. You just have to count them. The narrator did a really amazing literary thing here. He used the exact same number of words in his prologue to the book of Ruth as he did in his epilogue to the story. It's an amazing thing. He, he used the same exact number of words to describe the tragedies of this book and in Naomi's life as he did to describe the healing and the redemption that God worked in Naomi's life. And so you don't even have to read the words. You just have to count them to be able to know that God is going to make every wrong right, that he's going to make every tear into joy, that he's going to take every hurt and heal it down to the very last word. You don't even have to read the words to know. You just have to count But you should read them. They're beautiful words. As you read the words, you can find out how it was that God worked redemption in this story. How it was that he brought Naomi back from hunger in a foreign land to be satisfied in her home. How he brought life back to her right in this text today. This epilogue, this, this comforting conclusion to the book we saw this beautiful scene where Naomi the grandmother is is there with her grandson holding him caring for him and as you remember where Naomi has been and the death that she's seen and the trauma that's been in her life you can see how the Lord has filled her life with life it's beautiful it's almost unbelievable. It's almost too good to be true. You know, I, I think Naomi sensed that. The narrator kind of lets us know in, in, in some subtle ways that, that Naomi may have had some trouble really accepting her grandchild into her heart and, and really being able to love him completely. Naomi, she's this woman whose life has been made sweet. And, and, and one thing that we can know about her, especially right here, is that she doesn't say anything about it. She's been a woman who has been completely willing to speak in the past, but she's not speaking here. And that's a little bit strange. Now, when you're a grandma, there are a few grandmas here today. Uh, you will understand this far better than I will ever be able to understand this. There's something amazing happens when a grandma meets her grandchild for the first time. Now, she hears the good news that the baby has been born, 
And she goes as soon as she can to go meet this grandchild. And as soon as she can, she picks up that baby in her arms. And when she does, everything else disappears. I've seen this in my own life. And I've seen it in my life as a pastor. How when that grandma picks up that baby, everything else disappears for her. In that moment, there is just love for that baby boy. It's like that for grandmas most of the time. Not with this grandma. With this grandma, the narrator suggests this to us, that there was some chronology of time that passed between when the baby was born and when Naomi took him into her heart. One reason that, that we can think like that is, is the process of what it took for the baby boy to be named. You know, you might notice that it wasn't Ruth and Boaz who named their baby. It wasn't them, and it wasn't because they couldn't think of a baby name. It wasn't because they had gone through their list of 30,000 baby names from A to Z and hadn't found any of them acceptable. That wasn't it. No, in the Hebrew, it makes it a lot more clear than in the English that what we're witnessing here at the end of chapter 4 is, a, is kind of a, an adoption scene where you might remember that the reason that Boaz married Ruth in the first place was so that Elimelech's name, Naomi's dead husband, so that his name could, could continue to live on. And so in order to honor that, and in order to honor Elimelech and Naomi, Ruth and Boaz are, in a sense, giving her this child so that she can be his guardian. So that he can be one who will care for her. So Ruth and Boaz don't name the baby boy. And you see that Naomi doesn't name the baby boy either. You know who does? Do you remember? Did you catch that? The narrator says this, that the women living there said that Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. So it's, it's strange, right? It wasn't Ruth and Boaz that named the child, and it wasn't Naomi who named the child. It was the women of the city. And that's a little bit strange, and you might think to yourself, why in the world wouldn't Naomi take the chance to name her grandson? But empathize with her for a second, and you might understand. You may have experienced this before, how when you name something, <clears throat> you love that thing. When I was a little boy, <clears throat> our family bred golden retriever puppies, and we would try our best not to name the puppies so that we wouldn't get attached to them too quickly. So that it wouldn't be as hard to say goodbye when someone else came and bought the puppies. You know, when you name something, you grow attached to it. You, you receive that thing into your heart and you love it with all your heart. And so you can imagine why Naomi might have a hard time receiving this baby boy and naming him and receiving him into her heart. What you have in this text is the portrait of a woman, and maybe you can see her clearly at this point in the sermon series, a portrait of a woman who is perhaps thinking to herself, I've been here before. I've been here in this joyful moment with a baby boy in my lap. I know this joy, and I know the sorrow that can happen. You know, maybe you can appreciate the portrait of Naomi who is there thinking, I don't know if I can take sorrow like that again. It 
So she has a hard time receiving the baby boy into her heart. I was thinking about that this week. <clears throat> I've lived in apartments. I've lived in plenty of apartments. I've lived in plenty of dorms. And those of you who have lived in apartments and dormitories will know what this is like. How when the person who lives above you, above you gets home um, from work or from school or whatever it might be, usually the first thing that that person does is they take off their shoes. And so you might first hear the door slam at the front, and then you, you listen. You can't help but stop and listen and get distracted from whatever you are doing to wait for that shoe to drop. And then, and then you have to wait so patiently and listen closely for, and then we have a phrase for this, wait for the other shoe to drop. Right, we have this phrase for this. We have this phrase for describing what it's like to wait for something that we expect to happen. And this phrase has come to represent so, uh, uh, a spiritual and emotional epidemic that has been visible in people forever. This epidemic that it's like this. We have something going well in our lives. Things are sweet. Things are good. And when things are good, we start looking over our shoulder. And we start wondering to ourselves, when's the other shoe going to drop? When is this going to come back and hurt me? Right? We, we live this life of, of tension, waiting for the other shoe to drop. We, we live a life of fear and anxiety, wondering when the worst is going to happen. It's no way to live. Right, that thinking about this can help us empathize with Naomi, right? It's no way to live for a grandmother to not be able to go without fear into loving her grandson. And it shouldn't happen that a person should have to come home from the hospital and think to themselves, well, it's only a matter of time until I'm back. And it shouldn't have to happen that a person who has experienced the joy of, of becoming engaged to be married and they're sitting thinking to themselves, when's my marriage going to go wrong? That shouldn't have to happen. It's not a life we want to live. It's a life where we let our baggage from the past come and affect the present, where we let the carcasses of the past come and stink up the present. It's no way to live. And I want you to know that I'm not up here condemning all of this. What, what I want to be doing up here is, is I want to be acknowledging this in front of you this morning so that we can understand that all of us live like this at one point or another. Maybe all the time. I mean, who among us have, has not lived in a kind of standoffish way, putting up boundary after boundary because we're afraid that if we let people in, they're going to hurt us? And who among us, right, who among us has, has wondered whether, whether any good thing in their lives is not too good to be true? And who among us isn't able to go back through the hard things of their lives and wonder when the next one is going to come? We all suffer with that. Naomi certainly did. I want us to acknowledge that this morning. so we can talk about the real danger behind it. 
See, it's like this. When we live our lives just waiting for the other shoe to drop, and when we live our lives in fear and anxiety of what might happen, we're not fully hoping in Jesus. When we're constantly just waiting for the shoe to drop, we're not fully hoping. We are despairing. We've watched throughout the, the, the story of Ruth and Naomi how the Lord has worked so much redemption. We've seen how the Lord has redeemed Naomi and Ruth from a life of, of insecurity, physical insecurity. We've seen how the Lord has redeemed Naomi from a life of bitterness. We've seen how the Lord has redeemed Ruth from a life of, of, of two kinds of death. Her husband died and her, her womb was barren. The Lord has given her a husband and a child. But what we get to see today is that the greatest redemption, right? This is what I want to tell you today. The greatest redemption that God works is not the redemption that he works in the things around us. The greatest redemption that God works is the redemption that he works in our hearts. When he comes to us in his word through his good news and he assures us even though your sin problem was too great for you to ever pay for yourself, it has been paid for. You've been redeemed and that means that your story will not end in tragedy, it will end in triumph. It will end in the joys of heaven. See, that is the greatest redemption that, God's wor that God works for us. It's not in the things that he does around us. It's the things that he does in our hearts. And that's what he did for Naomi. That's what I want us to observe today. Did you see how he did that for Naomi? How he delivered the good news to her? He gave her a choir. <laughs> and the choir sang... It was a choir made up of, of the women of the town of Bethlehem. They, they came to her and they proclaimed the good news to her. This is what they said. They said, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. So you can notice what's happening here. You know, we've talked through so much context in this sermon series. These women are the women who know Naomi. They know who she is. They know her doubts, they know her fears, they know her anxieties, and they're preaching into them to cut them down, to undercut them. They're, they're saying, Naomi, you don't have to be afraid. The Lord has not left you alone. He has not left you without a Redeemer. You know, sometimes that's what we need. Sometimes we need someone who's going to tell us that our fears are not valid, that our tears are not worth shedding because we have not left, been, been left alone. These women, they came to Naomi and they told her, the Lord will renew your life. And you know that they're talking about her inner life. You know that they're talking about her heart. 
these women, they came to Naomi and they preached the good news to her. That she is not alone. The Lord has given her a redeemer. That the Lord will renew her life. The Lord gave Naomi's heart a full choir. That's how he delivered the good news to her. Now, there's a lot I want to say to that. This is where I want to start making some real application to your life here. Um, The Lord gave Naomi a choir to preach the good news to her. I want to apply this to you. We know this intuitively, but I'm going to state it out loud anyway. People are not good at doing life by themselves. We're not made for it. I think if, if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that we're not good at doing life by ourselves. When we try and handle the hard things in life by ourselves, time and time again, we end up spinning out and going down a hole. We're not good at doing life by ourselves. There's no such thing as a lone wolf truly, right? And so here's the application. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. It is not good for a person to be a Christian without a church, a Christian without a pastor. I want to apply this further. You know what this means? It means it's important that you come to church on Sunday. (laughs) Because at church on Sunday, what there is, is there is a pastor who has been spirit-appointed, divinely appointed to be the one who speaks the word of God to you, who proclaims the forgiveness of sins, who proclaims the law and the gospel in word and sacrament to you. That's my divine calling. Please don't take it away from me. (laughs) We're not built to be by ourselves, and so I want to push further into that. Look around you. You've got brothers and sisters around you and you need them. Just like Naomi needed her brothers and sisters in Bethlehem. You remember what Naomi did the first, the first thing that she did there in Bethlehem? When she got back to Bethlehem with her brothers and sisters, you know what she did? She vented to them. She had this spiritually authentic moment with them where she vented all of her fears and her doubts and her anxieties and her bitternesses. She she spoke it all out before them. And because she did that, the people of her town were able to then come to her and preach preach the gospel to her. Preach into her anxiety and her bitterness and share the good news with her. We need that. And so here's, here's my second application, right? I don't want to be the only person who speaks the gospel to you. I'll ask you, please don't put that on me. (laughs) I will never be enough. You need a choir who is going to preach the good news to you. You need lots of people who are going to be with you in your life to be able to speak the gospel to you. And so, right, this is where it gets gets very real into your life. Not... It's, it's good. You need to come to church for more than one reason. And it's not just so that you can participate in worship. It's so that you can pursue Christian friendships. It's so that you can pursue a Christian friend who you can go to coffee with, who you can text when things are getting rough so that you can be there for them and they can be there for you. It's one of the most beautiful gifts that God gives us is the gift of Christian friendship, which, by the way, is why Hope Lutheran Church leans so hard into growth groups. 
These growth groups where six to ten people meet together each week where they can pray for each other, share with each other, love each other. So that we can fully hope together. I want to end this sermon and this series with the final words of the book. The final words of the book kind of look like a genealogy that you'd normally skip over. <laughs> Where you get to words like this and, and you skip over them because it's just a bunch of names. Don't do that. It's not just a genealogy, it's a song. And the last word of the song is David. And I can't emphasize too much how important that fact is. By the way, genealogies never end a book. More often they begin a book, and when they don't begin a book, they're in the middle of a book, and usually they're used to tell the history of, a, of where a family has been, or sometimes to, tell, uh, to give a little bit of a barometer of where a family is or, or is going. This genealogy serves a completely different purpose. This genealogy serves to give you the last word of the story. It's not just the last word of the story of Ruth, it's the last word of your story too. The last word. David. That finally out of this whole story of redemption is the king. David. And the ultimate King David, Jesus. The narrator, by giving us this genealogy to end the book, is not just telling you where, you, where this story ends, he's telling you where your story ends. He's telling you how every ill, every hardship, every pain, every ache will finally end in one word. David, Jesus. So people of hope, hope, <laughs> hope in Jesus. The king who is better for you than Ruth was to Naomi. And you heard these words about, about Ruth, that, that she was better to Naomi than seven sons. Jesus is better for you than Ruth was to Naomi. Hope in Jesus. The one who is better for you than Boaz was to Ruth, and you know what Boaz was to Ruth. Hope in Jesus. Who has done the saving work of redemption to redeem every hardship, to redeem every evil, to redeem every one of your sins so that you would be free. So that you don't have to wonder about when the other shoe is going to drop. Because the shoe is already dropped on Jesus. So that all you have to do now is hope. 
Can I leave you with one final image from this book? You get to be Naomi this morning. You get to be Naomi and let Naomi teach you how to take all of this in to your own heart. You know that for Naomi, it was hard. But like Naomi today, you can gather this Redeemer into your arms and hold him close to your heart. And with all of the rest of the community of believers here, name him. Name him in your hearts. Name him for who he is. Name him for what he's done. Name him your Redeemer, Jesus. Amen.